I went to high school in the 80s, so I, uh, why is that funny? Oh, it's funny, but I went to high school in the 80s, so I fell in love with you too, all right? Um, some of you are familiar with this. Uh, this was an interview that Bono did. I believe it was published in Rolling Stone a few years back. The interviewer says, I think that I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? And Bono says, yeah, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for a company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. Or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all This, as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which, in my case, is very good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. (laughs) And the interviewer says, I'd be interested in some of that stupid stuff. (laughs) Mala says, well, that's just between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. We would all be in big trouble if at the end of this deal, we were based on the good and the bad. And he says, I'd be in deep It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The interview then says, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world? I wish I could believe that. Some of your friends are asking the very same question. But the idea, Bono says, of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness, and there's a mortality as part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. The point of death of Christ, though, is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that gets us through the gates of heaven. Interviewer says, that's a great idea, no denying it. Such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy. In my view, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but the Son of God, come on, that's far-fetched. Listen carefully. Bono says, it's not far-fetched to me. 
Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot of things to say along the lines of other great prophets like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you to say that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 no. Please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We could handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And Jesus says, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from the creeps, but actually, I'm the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts looking at their shoes and saying, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. (laughs) So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking about nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. The idea that the entire course of civilization over half the globe could have his, its fate change and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. If only we could be a bit more like him, the world would be transformed. When I look at the cross of Christ, what I see up there is all my beep and everybody else's. So I asked myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? And was he who he said he was? Or was he just a religious nut? And there it is. That's the question. And no one can talk you into it. No one can talk you out of it. Last week, Jesus comes along and says to a crippled man, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders go, that's a claim that only God could make. This week, Jesus does it at another level even higher. Because then, this week, what we're going to look at, he says, um, I didn't come to reform religion. I came to end religion and replace it with myself. And all the people said, Oh, you guys say amen to that. I'm saying people back then. Okay, you're with me. People, people back then started think, yeah, yeah. If they all said amen, it would have been a different history story. But, yeah. But we're on the other side of the cross, you see, 2,000 years later. Turn your Bibles to Mark. You're with me today. This is good. This is good. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Here we go. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for prophets, priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, Here are the words. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Verse 28. So the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And God gave the Ten Commandments. The fourth one said what? Do you remember? Remember the Sabbath and keep it 
holy. Work six days, but on the seventh day, rest. By the time of Jesus, the religious leaders, in order to make sure that people were going to keep the Sabbath, came up with 39 specific detailed ways in which people were supposed to keep the Sabbath. They called it halakha. And one of these 39 rules that they made up to make sure people kept the Sabbath was, unfortunately, reaping grain, which is what the disciples are doing. So the disciples are breaking one of their laws. And so the Pharisees and religious leaders say to Jesus, why are they doing what is unlawful? That's the context. Halakha. Now, real quick, because this is kind of a, a two, three major part sermon here. We're going to talk about the Sabbath a little bit, a little bit, because Jesus talks about the Sabbath. And will you please notice that Jesus affirms the Sabbath? Will you notice that Jesus says Sabbath was made for man? Jesus doesn't say Sabbath was made for Jews. Jesus doesn't say Sabbath was made for my followers, Christians alone. Jesus says Sabbath was made for man or all of humanity. He affirms it. He says it is right to take time off from work. It is right to be restored. It is right to rest. If you are somebody sitting here and you do not regularly keep, yes, I'm looking at some of you, the Sabbath and rest and put limitations to your work, Jesus says to you and me, keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. There are two levels of work, you see. There's level of work up here, and then there's level of work down here, and we'll talk about that. And Jesus says, unless you take the Sabbath, you'll never truly, truly rest, not just from work up here, but work down here. But we'll get to that in a second. Jesus goes on, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. There are not a whole lot of times in the Gospels when the Gospel writer says, Jesus became angry. This is one of them. Why is he angry at the Pharisees? Because they're completely missing the point Jesus is doing exactly what the Sabbath is about. What is the Sabbath about? Sabbath is about repairing that which is broken. Sabbath is about restoring that which is diminished. Sabbath is about replenishing the drained healing of this man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is about. But the religious, listen, the religious leaders are so concerned about keeping the rules and regulations. By the way, whose rules? Their rules and their regulations that they're anxious and they're insecure about it, which turns into, and I'll get to this, self-righteousness. And completely lacking in love. Why? 
One word. Religion. Religion. Jesus is constantly comparing the difference between gospel and religion in the gospels. And by the way, when I say religion, I'm not talking about the system of beliefs that a group of people kind of adhere to. When I talk about religion, I'm talking about false religion. I'm talking about this empty, behavioristic, ritualistic, works righteousness thing that tries to earn God's favor. Imagine two people. Let's not imagine. There's two people sitting side by side here today in church. And they have two completely different motivations for why you obey. One person, your obedience is filled with anxiety. It's a burden. It's enslaving. Another person, obedience is filled with joy. It's filled with delight. It's a gift. Two people sitting side, you know who I'm talking to. Two people sitting side by side. Some of us this morning are going, obedience, it's a chore, it's a burden. I hate doing it, but I have to. Another group of people, obedience, it's a joy, it's a delight, it's a gift. The difference, religion and the gospel. We've defined religion this way. Religion, I'm going to put it up on the screen, simply says, I obey Therefore, I'm accepted. If I perform, if I'm good, then God will love me. And when you whittle it down to the bottom, all the religions of the world say this. God loves, but on condition. Meet the conditions, then get his love. This is the reason why people say, when you, when you boil it down, are all religions the same thing? Are all religions about God is love and he loves on condition? Meet the conditions, then God will love you. By the way, the reason why this works is because every single one of us in this room desperately yearn to be loved, and we are absolutely convinced that it's completely conditional. That's how it works. Religious institutions have been able to do what governments can't keep people in line. Why? Every one of us want to be loved. And we are convinced it's conditional. So believing in conditional love, it's kind of like believing in aliens, you know. We think they're out there, sort of. Is it true? Listen to carefully. Listen to carefully. Listen to me carefully. (laughs) By the way, by the way, if I have one sermon left to me before I die, it's this sermon, okay? So if I go like tomorrow morning, this is the last sermon I want to preach. So I'm going to be a little bit excited today. I'm going to lose my voice. Take my time. Thank you, Carlton. I'm going to take my time. The gospel, listen, the gospel is not just different from religion. The gospel is diametrically opposed to religion. I'm going to say it again. The gospel is not just what's different from religion. The gospel is diametrically opposed to essence of religion. If religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, the gospel says, I am unconditionally and fully accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. I am unconditionally And fully accepted in Christ. Therefore, I obey. I have said this countless times. And I will say it until I die. God will love you is not the gospel. 
God will love you. It's, some of us grew up in churches where we thought the gospel was what? God will love you. And if follow, right? The gospel says in Christ, God loves you, period. Can I get an amen? God loves you, period. Now, now. Not tomorrow when I do better. Not tomorrow when you do better. Not next week when I kind of clean myself up. Not next week. Right now. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Gospel is not just different from religion. It is diametrically opposed. She says, this is the reason why. The reason why I preach on this every single week is because, again, you believe that in order to be loved, it's conditional. So unless, I was talking to Tom. Tom, you're here this morning. Man, Tom and I ran into that gaslight coffee yesterday. And one of the things we talked about, and was just so blessing to him, he's like, I need to be there on Sunday mornings. And part of the reason why, he knows that the gospel needs to be pounded into his heart and into his brain. Otherwise, we slide towards religion. Can anybody relate? This is the reason why some of us are sitting here, and you're just feeling condemned. Ain't nobody saying doing nothing to you. You're just feeling condemned. Do you know what I'm talking about? You just feel this kung fu, heavy kind of rain. Nobody's saying doing nothing to you. You just, do you, you know why? Because at the end of the day, if you genuinely believe, and many of us operate, if you genuinely believe that you are accepted because you obey, here's what happens. If you had a good week, you're sitting here, you're going, pretty smug. I had a good week. I could sing these songs. But if you had a bad week, you lost your temper. Ah, you gave into that sin again. You kicked your dog. Oh, so, oh my gosh. Was it, is that like bad? I'm sorry. I come from a culture where dogs aren't, you know, equal to. Oh, all right, all right, okay. Oh, man, I just. <laughs> am I hated by all pet lovers? No. Just to be clear, I've never kicked a dog, okay? I just want to be clear. You're just sitting in here. I'm serious. Some of us are sitting here, and you just feel this heavy weight. Of, oh, and, and Satan's having a field day because you're sitting here, and you're thinking about, I did that. I did that. Um, what does that have to do with today's sermon, Peter? It has everything to do with today's sermon. Why? Because listen to what is happening here. In religion, the whole purpose of obeying the law, to assure yourself that you have a good standing with God, that you're worthy of God's love. So do you know what you do in religion when it comes to laws? You want to know, what do I exactly have to do? Give me the details. I want to know exactly what I have to do. Not just, you know, give me the details of exactly what I have to do. Because I want to do exactly what I have to do. Because my standing with God is based on that. So you can add all kinds of details to it. Forget about the broad meaning. Forget about broad motives of the heart. Give me detail, give me detail, give me detail, give me details. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So it's kind of like, obey the Sabbath. And we're not going to go to restaurants and spend money on Sundays. What? But dad, you're going like 89 miles per hour and breaking the law. Still, we're not going to spend any money at restaurants. Or Christianity, something along the lines of don't drink or smoke or girl, go with girls. That do, I mean, it's just, 
But when it comes to don't dance, I mean, there, we lack, what, what, is, what is that? Why do we add layer upon layer upon? Why do we add all these details? Because in religion, if your acceptance before God is based on performance and how well you obey, you want to know, what do I have to do exactly? Give me the details. The problem with that, of course, is Jesus comes along. By the way, this is for some of us that grew up in legalistic Christianity. We thought, boy, legalistic Christianity is really hard to do. No, it's not. You know why? Because if you're a little bit motivated, you could obey the laws externally. Jesus comes along for us. He goes, uh, 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 I'm actually more concerned about your heart. Because you've been told, don't be angry or do not commit murder. And Jesus comes along and says, uh, don't even be angry. Oh, you've been told, do not commit adultery. I don't commit adultery. He then, he says, have you lusted? Because you have, you commit adultery in your heart. See, Jesus comes along and he goes, uh, external behavior more. That's actually not, if you really try, Jesus says, but I'm after your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart. Do you know why I feel so passionate about this? I'll tell you why. Because it is ironic to me that people who claim to be closest to God are so rarely closest to love. Does that make sense? Because if God is love, shouldn't people who know God best love people most? But you know what's happened in our culture? People who claim to know God best have turned self-righteous, and we take rules and we hurt people. We hurt people with our rules. We hurt people with our self-righteousness. We take these rules and we go, you're in, you're out. And we hurt them. We take these rules and we go, you're good, you're bad. We take these rules and you go, you're in, God accepts you. And we take them and go, God doesn't accept you, you're out. We use rules to hurt people. And I want to say, as a Christian, as a pastor, if you've been hurt by that brand of Christianity, I am sorry. Because that's not God. That's not Jesus. It has nothing to do with the gospel. I can't tell you the number of conversations I have as a pastor over the years with people who say, I fell away from the church. And just, why? And automatically at some point they go, because I was hurt by rules, regulations, rules. Regulations. The gospel of Jesus isn't just different from religion, but it's diametrically opposed to religion. The starting point of the gospel is I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. If religion is ultimately about rules, the gospel is ultimately about relationships and a relationship of love. And in a relationship of love, your motivation for obedience becomes totally different. Listen. Very carefully to what I'm about to say for the next two minutes. In religion, I obey because I don't want to get punished. In the gospel, you obey because you go, why would I do that? And hurt the person I love the most. In religion, why obey? Religion says because it's against the Christian principles. Or if I don't obey, my sins will find out. Gospel says you're not loving as though you're loved. The gospel says why would you do that? The gospel says don't obey because if you don't, God will forsake you. The gospel says at an inestimable 
cost. He has said to you, he will never, ever forsake you. That's why you should obey. In religion, in religion, I obey in order to get some blessing from God. The gospel says, I obey to get God himself. In religion, we go to God because he's useful for getting the things our hearts most want. In the gospel, we go to God because he's beautiful. In religion, I obey in order to feel superior to other people. In the gospel, I have been unconditionally saved by sheer grace and mercy of God. How could I possibly look down at anybody else? Do you see how the gospel completely transforms your motivation? Yes? The gospel completely transforms your motivation. The gospel's motivation for obedience, I have been given every spiritual blessing, therefore I obey. I am the object of infinite and eternal love. That's why I obey. I can't be more loved if I do good, and I can't be less loved because I do bad. That's why I obey. I obey in the gospel to please and resemble the one who created me, who redeemed me, who saved me, and who says, I will never forsake you. That's why we obey. And for anybody who goes, if you preach too much on grace, then you know people will not take it. If you think that to get somebody to behave, you need to preach more rules, listen, legalism never made anybody want to be better. Legalism makes you want to give up. And some of y'all sitting here going, that's me right now. I just want to give up because I just can't do this anymore. Legalism doesn't make you want to obey. It makes you want to give up. The gospel goes. That's, why, that's by the way, me going, the gospel exploding in your heart. The gospel explodes in your heart. And you go, he loves me like that? Listen, listen, listen. My motivation for why I'm a good husband to my wife cannot be driven by, if I do that, I'm a bad husband. If I do that, what kind of a pastor? If I do that, what? My motivation for loving my wife has to be, why would I do that and hurt the person I love the most? Why would I do that and hurt the person who has committed to me and said, no matter what, I will never leave you? So let me ask you a question. Is your motivation... Drudgery, burden. I really want to do that, but if I do, I'm going to go to hell, so I'm not going to do it. Is your motivation one of, it's a gift, it's a joy, it's delight. I shared this example before, I'm just going to share. When I was in college, I was a holy Christian. I was godly, meaning self-righteous. Man on campus. And secretly, I envied this guy. I envied this guy on campus who just, just wild. I mean, just, just slept around and just, and deep down inside, I envied him. I was like, I'll be holy. I'll be sexually pure. Praise the Lord Jesus. I hate this. <laughs> Some of y'all, if you know what I'm talking about, say Amen. Oh, I know who you are. 
Do you know why I was a miserable, absolutely the miserable, joyless Christian? You think it's because I was obeying it? Heck no! Because deep down in my heart, I actually believe that the reason why God loved me is because I was a good person. I was held in this bondage too on the outside. I am perfectly happy, Lord, sexually pure for you, Jesus, and secretly resentful at the fact that I was a Christian. I know I'm talking to like one person in here this one. I know. Listen. listen, listen, listen. What is your motivation for obedience? Is it motivated by the gospel? Or is it motivated by religion, religion, religion? And then Jesus he comes along and he says, no uncertain terms, I am here to not reform religion, not, not reform and change a little way. I'm here to end it and replace it with myself. In the face of this self-righteous religious preoccupation, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath, not man for Sabbath. God says it's not because you're a better Christian if you obey the Sabbath. God says, it's not because if you obey the Sabbath, I will accept you. That's been settled on the cross. It doesn't make one iota of a difference in terms of how God feels about you, whether you take seriously the Sabbath. God says the Sabbath is not for me. It's for you. Well, if I obey the Sabbath, God, will you love me? No! God says the Sabbath is given to save us from ourselves. How much? <laughs> he doesn't give me the Sabbath. He can go, well, my life will be better. He says, I, Sabbath to save you from you. What do I mean? Genesis chapter 2. Give me like five minutes on this because it's review. We need to move on. Genesis 2 tells us that God's finished the work of creation. And on the seventh day, he rested from his work. What does this mean that God rested? It's God, God was tired. God's God. He's eternal. He's infinite. God wasn't tired. When the Bible says that God rested, here's what it means. God creates the creation account, and he says, it's good. God creates, and he says, it's good. God creates, he says, it's good. And then it says God rested from his work. What does it mean to rest from your work? Here's what it means. It means to be completely and utterly, totally satisfied with what's been done. To rest from your work is, there's no more to be done. There's, no more need. There's nothing more to be done. Okay, so I'm going to rest. Not a single person in here feels that today. You can't even pay attention to what I'm talking about right now because you're thinking about your work. <laughs> it's a bad sign when one of my staff is like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> None of us in this room right now can truly say, I'm totally rested from my work. Nothing more to be done. Do you know why? Because it's not just work. There's work, and then there's work. What do I mean? Hebrews chapter 4. I need, you get, I need to get you to this place. Hebrews 4 verse 9. There remains in a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that there is work underneath the work. And that's why you're so tired. That's why I'm so tired. It's not just work. There's work up here. It's a physical work. There's the work down here. What do I mean? For all of us, it's not just a job. It's our identity. 
It's our significance. It's, this is how I know my parents are proud of me. It's, this is how I know I'm somebody. It's, this is how I know that I'm accepted by those people. There's work up here. You know who you are. And then there's work. And this underneath the work for salvation, for significance, for worth, for approval, for somebody to say, you're a good person, mom. You're a good person, dad. You're a good person, husband, wife. You're a good person, lawyer. You're a good person, doctor. You're a good student. That work underneath the work is never done. And so you walk around and you're tired. My favorite example is Chariots of Fire, right? Harold Abrams, world-class sprinter, wants to win the gold medal. Somebody asks him, why do you run? And he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. You laugh, but you know what? You realize that's what you're saying today. I'm a good student. That justifies my existence. Some of us in the nonprofit world, Are you hearing me? See, I could walk down right now and grab some of you and go, are you hearing me? And you know who you are. And then there's Eric Little, right, who keeps the Sabbath. The day of the gold medal race, he says, not going to run. Why? I keep it holy. But the gold medal. And the funny thing is, Harold Abrams wins the gold medal And he feels empty. Do you know why? It's never big enough for your soul. It's never big enough for your soul. It's never big enough for your soul. Career, marriage, relationships, money, success, those are wonderful gifts from God, but they will never replace God. It's not big enough. The ironic thing is, Harold Abrams is at rest. He's done with the race, but he's still restless. Eric Little, he's running, exerting himself, but he's totally at rest. If you are sitting here, and I'm telling you, you can't pay attention because of that thing, you have a problem. And the problem is, it's not just work. It's to work underneath the work. It's the voice that cries out to you. Come on. You don't want to be a loser. Come on. And this voice, my friends, is allowed right now. Work, 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 work. And Jesus in all this says what? He is Lord even of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath literally means deep rest, deep peace. It's actually near synonym for shalom, wholeness, universal flourishing. And when Jesus says, I am the Sabbath, when Jesus says, I am the Sabbath, he is saying something so profound. Jesus is saying the commandment to rest one day a week was to point you to the true source of the ultimate rest that you need. The commandment to rest, the Sabbath, like anything else in the Old Testament, was to point it 
to Jesus, the true source of ultimate rest that you long for. Do you know how Jesus does this? Can I just, can I just do this? Tom said he like appreciates it, so I, I'm going to do this again. Do you know why this is so important? Do you know why you and I could find rest? Because on the cross, Jesus experiences cosmic, infinite restlessness. On the cross, the Father turns his face away. There is restlessness for anyone who's turned themselves away from God. And Jesus is saying, this is why you can rest. Because I experience cosmic eternal restlessness. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? What, do you think Christian is, well, I obey. I want to be like Jesus, so help me God. Good Lord. I want to be like Jesus, so help me God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means I rest not on my work, but his work. I rest not in my acceptance of what I do, but his acceptance of me. I rest not in my righteousness, but his righteousness. Jesus is saying, on the cross is the thing that will ultimately give you what you're resting, longing for. What does it mean? On the cross, Jesus is saying, the significance you long for in your work, right here. The work that you long for in your work, right here. Unless you look at the cross and you go, the significance I look for, the acceptance I'm looking for, the rest I'm looking for has been done and accomplished by Jesus. The only eyes in the world, in the universe, whose approval matters to me, he looks at me and he says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. Jesus is on the cross. On creation, I finished the work of creating. He said, it is finished. In redemption, Jesus says, I die and rise for you. It is finished. Are you, are you restless? You will never find rest until the cross becomes real. Until you hear the Father's voice who says, I am pleased with you. Um, you, you. Unless you actually believe that God looks at you and goes, I'm pleased. Work is done. You will never stop striving, not just spiritually, but in everything else. Because that's your salvation. Verse 6. And the Pharisees went out again and began to plot with the Herodians. Huh, they might kill Jesus. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a ridiculous verse. Do you know why? Because the Pharisees and the Herodians could not have been more unlikely tandem. The Pharisees and the Herodians, well, we'll get to that in a moment, okay? We'll get to that. Who are these people and why do they want to kill Jesus? But will you please notice that the reason why they want to kill Jesus is because of his claims? When Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be the uncreated, beginningless, transcendent, eternal, created, and judge of the universe. And this claim is found on every page of the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. Jesus is talking about demon possession. And he just off, the, just off the cuff goes, yeah, and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was there. I was there. Before the material universe was created, I saw Satan go bad. And he fell. It was bad. People are going, what? Matthew chapter 6. I keep sending you prophets and sages and you don't listen to them. What? You keep sending. You keep sending. You mean you're a prophet? No, 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 no. I keep sending them to you. 
You know what you never find in the New Testament? Thus saith the Lord. Never. You know what Jesus says? I say unto you. Do you know what? I just, give me like two minutes for this. Even though it turns into like ten minutes. <laughs> My wife is like, don't say at the end of your sermon, like give me like two minutes. Because you go for 20 and people don't like that. So I will. Um, <laughs> truth, right? She speaks truth. Do you know why? I, because I was in a coffee shop. I had this conversation again. Because I can't help but listen, you know. I had a conversation again with the good people. Jesus is a good teacher, man. But this whole thing about him being God, that's stupid, man. That's nonsense. And I just go, excuse me. Have you, have you read any of his claims? Because it's clear that you haven't read any of his teachings. Because his teachings are based on his claims. And his claims are, I'm God. Jesus never walked around and said, I'm a philosopher, I'm a teacher. Jesus said, I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright. One of my favorite authors. I like to quote him all the time. Listen to this quote. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself walked in our midst? Don't you love his language? Then he says, Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world where it's a sham, it's nonsense. And then he says this, most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. He's saying if you have any integrity at all, you wouldn't like Jesus. If Jesus had a Facebook account, nobody would like it. (laughs) Who would like somebody that goes around and says, I'm God? Abandon everything you have and follow me. Who would like somebody or admire somebody who comes along and says, The world revolves around you right now, and that's sin. You're self-absorbed, self-centered. That's sin. Who would admire somebody who says, I stand as the center of the universe. Start revolving around me. Listen, if you're somebody who goes, you know what, Peter, I admire Jesus. This is a church I hate. I'm offended by the church. I'm offended by Christians. Listen, I'm not going to defend myself or our church because we're not what we need to be sometimes. But please, if you have any integrity, don't be so flippant about saying, I admire Jesus. Do you know who he is? Do you know what he said? All right, let's, let's look at this, okay? Let's look at this. Who are, who are, who are the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees and uh, uh, the Herodians? Uh, these are two things that didn't go together. And I saw an article of things that don't go together, so I just thought I'd share this with you. This may be total nonsense, but I thought. So, for example, Dennis Rodman and North Korea don't go together. <laughs> Nate, you know what I'm talking about. Dave, you know, yeah, loco, they don't go together. Um, here's another two things that don't go together. Lip syncing and the national anthem, okay? Two things that don't go together. Congress and approval ratings. Ooh, two things that don't go together. Um, I don't get this one. Somebody help me. Horse meat and Ikea. So what does that even mean? Does anybody know? They made meatballs with horse meat? Oh, in Europe. Okay. Wow. Okay. Some of you tech, some of you tech nerds help me out with this. Yahoo and telecommuting don't go together. Uh, hair dryers and bathtubs obviously don't go together. 
Hopefully you didn't learn that through experience. Tweets and good judgment. <laughs> Don't go together. I just one more. And then uh, uh, the meteors and planets. Despite love for movies that doomsday don't go together well why what it's just silly sorry about it it's just silly cut because i thought that's what you need to know pharisees and herodians and i go to who are the pharisees pharisees were a group of the religious if you will at that day who said we need to purify and cleanse the nation of israel from the dirty offensive assimilating influence of the pagan roman greek culture and the way we're going to purify the nation is through obedience to the laws that's pharisees the herodians were the epitome of the irreligious and the gospel comes along and says, Jesus is neither religion nor irreligion. And unless you did understand the difference between why the gospel is neither religion nor religion, you will not understand the gospel. So let's talk about the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? They were people who followed King Herod. Only thing you need to know about King Herod to know about him is he kills his brother so he could marry his brother's wife. That's Herod. Herodians were people who kissed up to him and followed him, helped him manage the government, so on and so forth. And these were powerful, wealthy people who had so totally assimilated into the Roman culture. And the gospel offends the Herodians. Why? For the same reason that the gospel offends some of you and me today. The gospel comes along, and the Herodians say, if religion is I obey the Bible, therefore I'm accepted, I'm a good person. Irreligious people go, the Bible? I don't even believe in the Bible. I do whatever I want to. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm the master of my own ship. I run my own ship. Thank you very much. I am. And the gospel comes along and says, listen carefully, you're a sinner. And you need a savior. I know churches don't like that, but the Bible says you're a sinner. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why, right? For some of us to go, the Bible. Let's say the Bible is not the authority of the word of God. If you're irreligious, you don't even live up to your own standards. We all have standards. You don't even live up to your own. What do I mean? The Bible says in our heart of hearts, we all know the golden rule. Treat other people as you want to be treated. I want to respect the say You don't even live up to your own standards. Every day, forget it. If you don't believe it, you walk around and go, oh, how could she? They should. They should. They need to. And if we recorded all of your they should, they need to, and we played at the end of the day and go, how much of those things did you actually do yourself? All of us go, fail. And the Bible's offense to the human heart because the Bible comes along and says, hey, see, see, you know what the Bible says? Heart of the Bible says the cross. And here's what the cross says. The cross says you're a sinner. And Jesus came not in strength and weakness. And he said, you're so weak, so frail, that only the gift of salvation by a Savior on your behalf will be sufficient to save you. And the human heart goes, I don't want somebody to save me. I can save myself, thank you very much. And the Bible says, you can't. There's not a single thing you can do. It's by grace and grace alone. And the irreligious girl, no, thank you. The Herodians are offended by the gospel because the Bible says the bad news of the gospel is you can't save yourself. You need grace. Why are the Pharisees offended? Pharisees of all people should have applauded and said, you tell them, immoral, irreligious. You tell them. Why are the Pharisees offended? For the same reason some of you are not offended by today. You know why? Because the heart of the human heart wants the religion. And Jesus denies it to us. What's the universal religion of the world? I obey. Therefore, God owes me. I obey. I'm a good person. Therefore, I don't deserve these things. I obey. 
I'm a good person. How dare you send these things into my life? Do you know why religion is universal and is so addictive and destructive at the same time? Matt, I'm sorry to do this, but I have to get in, the, I have to get in like, your face, congregation. The reason why religion is so addictive is because at its core, it allows us to do what you and I desperately long to do every day, which is maintain control of our own lives. Because if I obey, then I control God and go, you, don't, you can't send that into my life. I'm a good person. I obey. You can't demand that of me. You can't ask me to change this. You can't ask me to change that. I obey. I contribute. I'm a good person. Heart of religion is so attractive because it gets us to do what our hearts yearn for, which is I control my life. I control my life. I control my life. And the gospel comes and it threatens that and says, you are saved by grace and grace alone, which means God says, I could ask anything of you. I could demand anything of you. Do you see that? Do you see why it's just not, why just doesn't intellectually, it's not intellectual. It's our will that is at war with God. I want control. And God says, grace says you're not in control. Um, I'm not done here. Here's the question. How are you dealing with suffering? How are you dealing with unanswered prayer? How are you dealing with the fact that your life is not going as you want it to? Because in religion, you will react this way. You'll be mad at God. And some of you sitting here, single young adults, are incredibly mad at God. Why? Because heart of religion is I obey. I do these things. How dare you not get me married? How dare you have me run into a roadblock in my career? How dare you? You are mad at God because you're going, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. What is this? I don't deserve it. Or you're not just mad at God. You're mad at yourself, and you are filled with condemnation like I am a loser. What am I not doing? What am I not doing right? What could I do more? If I just didn't do that last year, oh, if I just didn't do that. And what the gospel says is all the punishment we deserved fell on Jesus. And suffering, difficulty, and trials, when they come, not if, when they come, God says, it's for your growth, it's for your discipline, and I will never leave you. Some of us, before we go home today, need to repent of our religion because that is causing your spiritual deadness and self-righteousness and no joy. We prefer religion, not just because it enables us to maintain control, because it gives us a way of feeling superior to other people. And our hearts are constantly comparing ourselves to other people to feel better of ourselves. Let me tell you what the gospel says and why the Pharisees were mad. See, see, you can come on up. The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says that the people who know they're not better than anyone else are in, and the people who think they're better than anyone else are out. 
In religion, you're saved by being better than everybody else. But in Christianity, you're only saved if you admit that you're absolutely no better than anyone else. And that you're in many, many ways, in all sorts of ways, spiritual, moral failures. And you and I can only be saved by grace and grace alone. The Herodians are mad because of the bad news of the gospel, which says you're a sinner, you need grace. And he makes the Pharisees upset because of the good news, which says you're saved by grace and grace alone, and there's not a single thing you can do to earn it. If you're a Christian here this morning, almost done, I have to say this to you. Do you know what this feels like to me? Living my life in light of the gospel feels like, have you ever tried going upstream on a river that is just powerfully coming down? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's how it feels sometimes because my natural tendency, it's automatic. I get up in the morning, I get up in the morning, and boom, automatic tendency is religion. Automatic tendency is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. This is automatic. It's just automatic. And what it feels like, it's, it's like clawing my way up. That's what it feels like every day. Every day. Because if you're sitting there going, man, how do you get the gospel? This is what it feels like for me. It's like clawing my way up to the truth of the gospel. It's just clawing my way up. Because every day I am tempted to fall into religion. But every day, I'm clawing my way up. I'm clawing my way up to the gospel. Or another analogy is, I'm pounding, I'm pounding, I'm pounding the truth of the gospel into my heart every day. I'm reminding myself, I'm reminding myself, I'm reminding myself every day, clawing my way, pounding my way into this truth. I am accepted in Christ. That's why I obey. I am loved eternally in Christ. That's why I obey. There is no condemnation. That's why I obey. I am not condemnable. That's why I obey. I am undisapprovable. That's why I obey. Every day. Every day. Every day. God's grace is inexhaustible. Why are you exhausting yourself trying to earn it? If you're a Christian and you're spiritually dead, there is no joy or delight to obedience. If you're a Christian and there's no delight, if you're a Christian and there is no motivation that arises out of this, you've done that for me. It's not doing more. It's not legalism. It's not trying harder. The antidote to deadness to grace is not religion. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I think this was John Newton who wrote this. Our pleasure and duty, though opposite before. Since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And hear his pardoning voice and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child you are no longer a slave you are a child you are no longer a slave you are a child you are no longer a slave you are a child of god and duty into choice and duty into choice and duty into choice Does anybody need to, along with me this morning, repent for our religion and our religiosity? 
Anybody? Anybody here need to just repent? I mean that. Repent of trying to earn God's favor, trying to merit God's favor. Anybody trying to earn? Ident- anybody need to just repent of that toxic? Anybody? Am I, am I the only one? If that's you this morning, can you just stand up from where you are? Can you just stand from where you are? Yeah, just, just come on. Just stand from. If you are somebody here this morning, and if this is you, don't stand up. But if this is you, because this is serious. This is serious business. If this is you this morning, if you're here this morning and you're going, oh, Peter, I want to be done. I want to be done with religion. I want to be done with religiosity. I want to be done with this toxic, destructive, addicting thing that it just has me by the throat. If that's you, will you stand with me? And for those of us that are standing here this morning, we need to repent. And I mean that. I need to repent. You need to repent of our religiosity remembering that he is faithful and just and will forgive us. Doesn't change one iota how he feels about us. Not one, one bit. But man, for our sake, for our sake, not to earn God's approval, he already approves you. Not to earn God's favor, he already favors you. But for our sake and for the health and soul of our hearts, can you and I that are standing this morning begin this journey, even just today, Repenting of our self-righteousness, repenting of our religious, repenting of trying to earn, trying to control God, trying to manipulate. Just and what I'm going to do is those of us that are standing, we're just going to pray on our own for just a, a, a moment. And then I'm going to ask the body, because I am presuming that those of you that are sitting are living your life driven by the engine of the gospel, that you get this, that this is real to you, that this is at work in your heart because we need you or the body. We need you. We need you to stand alongside us. We need you to stand behind us to pray for us. There's no self-righteousness here. The ground is level at the cross.